Phillips is filmed on location with the men of the Imperial Forces. All suspects are guilty, period. Otherwise, they wouldn't be suspect, would they? I joined the Empire about six years ago. I can remember as a kid, you know, watching the holographic images and being excited about the new direction that the uh, galaxy was taking. So when I was old enough, I uh, went down to the local recruitment center, you know, and signed up. And I've been here at uh, Tatooine ever since. Most people would call this the ass end of space, but I like the small town feeling you get around here. I mean, we know everybody, everybody. And I feel I can really make a difference here. fans and move milkers everywhere and welcome to episode number 43 of blast points now this week it's a special episode where it's an interview with me and mr kevin rubio now you probably know him as uh the guy that created the the pioneer fan film troops but he also wrote a bunch of star wars comics including tag and bank and he's someone who i've wanted to have on blast points since the very beginning so I was really happy that he took the time to talk to me recently. And um, yeah, it's a really great conversation. I hope you like it. And here it is. I read something that at age 17 or somewhere around there, you got your directorial debut with a stage adaptation of Ordinary People. Is this true? That is true. That's actually, you might have read it from my, uh, from my wiki wiki page i think that's where it was like (laughs) yeah that is that is true my my directorial debut was as a senior in high school uh directing a stage adaptation of ordinary people and i was such a pompous ass that i thought i'm not just gonna do one cast i'm gonna do two casts and and one cast is female-centric and the other cast is male-centric because that's what a, an important director would do. <laughs> wow. What an asshole I was. <laughs> I, I, everybody, everybody was great, but it was, it, uh, it was definitely a mistake on my part. And, and an interesting note to that, we actually, we were delayed because that year uh, our town got flooded. Okay. And the final night of dress rehearsal, all the sets had been built, all of the the set uh, dressing had been placed up, and it it really started to rain. It was it I've n- never seen rain this hard before or since to the point where I could not see two inches in front of me. And as I was driving home, I was just thinking, God, I hope everything's, you know, going to be okay at my folks' house. And I spent the entire night helping my neighbors evacuate and get to higher ground. When I called in the morning to the school and I said, I'm not going to be able to make it in today, uh, my roads washed out. And they said, uh, don't bother. The football stadium is flooded. The parking lot is a lake. And the theater is is seven rows underwater. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I just like, well, if it's seven rows underwater, that means that it's three feet of water on the stage. And my entire... My entire stage is is ruined, <laughs> and it was. So we we actually had to delay the production for uh, I believe two months. Even before that, how did it? 
How did it all begin for you with Star Wars? How were you first exposed to it? What's your first memory? Where did it all begin? Well, I'm, I'm old enough to have uh, been just the right age to see it in the theater when it first came out. I was 10 years old, mm-hmm. and my mother and father, who are both great movie lovers, took took the family. And I don't know what day it is. I want to say it was in June. It had not been released nationally in, in a lot of theaters on the, the 25th of May. So I'm pretty sure it was... Heavily into the summer, I, I, I want to say maybe the third week of June, and I saw it at the uh, Century Twenty Three Theaters in uh, San Jose, California, which is similar in construction to the Dome. And it was—I uh, I wish I could say it was something that you know changed my life, and that I knew from that moment that I wanted to be a director, and I fell in love with Star Wars. But honestly, the only thing I can remember about that first viewing is my father commenting to my mother as we were standing in line that the line was longer than the line for The Exorcist. Wow. <laughs> and, that, and, and that, aside from you know maybe R two is the is the only memory I have of that first showing. But by by the time of my eleventh birthday uh, that year in nineteen seventy seven, uh, which was in December, I could tell you the entire movie backwards and forwards. I had consumed every magazine that was available to me. I knew how the effects were done. I knew the names of the actors, the names of the special effects technicians, Ralph McQuarrie. And in fact, I still have the original portfolio that was issued. Uh, it was, it was, given, it was one of my uh, Christmas presents. She was as tough as she was beautiful. Here they come! A gentle princess who could handle a blaster with the best of them. But all she had to do to save the Rebel Alliance was escape from the Death Star. Princess Leah was running out of time. Princess Leah is back. Star Wars is back. Star Wars. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. You move into lots of forms of uh, areas of animation and producing, writing, directing. Yeah, well, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a very small town. We didn't have a film program per se. I don't think many high schools did, uh, perhaps uh, with, with exception to those in, in Los Angeles. Uh, but we had a, an excellent theater program, both uh, on the high school level and college and repertory theater. And so I was, I started out as a stagecraft technician and moved into a lighting design and a lighting director. It was a case of me since I, I couldn't, I didn't have access to, to the tools for film. I studied acting and, and lighting and set design and, uh, uh, my father was a uh, an artist uh, professor. Uh, he he taught uh, graphic arts, and uh, so uh, I, I would draw a lot, much to the chagrin of my parents who wanted me to study more. And I I just I worked my way through through that path until I graduated from uh, high school, and then came here to Los Angeles to the uh, uh, Long Beach State University and uh, studied film there. I feel like it's an interesting phenomenon for so many of us that grew up with the original trilogy and the Star Wars films where we all, John Dykstra or um, Dennis Muren, they were as big as stars to us as Mark Hamill and Harrison Ford. Yeah. Do you feel like kind of being introduced to Star Wars when you were so young led a path to you to working in the creative side? Absolutely. It's just, you know, I mean, that's, that is such an impressionable age Yeah, that the, the nine, 10, 11, 12, you know, you're not, you're not, your, your, your body and your mind aren't screwed up by hormones yet. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. uh, there's still a, there's still a sense of innocence and uh, I feel and, uh, uh, and wonder and, and the desire to learn things and I, I happen to have been just fortunate to have uh, glommed on to, to something that 
that sparked my my passion and, and a drive to do things and uh, and was able to uh, soak up everything to seek out that kind of stuff and I think a lot of that I'm gonna sound like an old man uh, a lot of that is lost now with with technology and the internet and the fact that everything is at your fingertips now you know you have a question oh, let me just pull out my phone uh, and so when when knowledge is so easily acquired, it doesn't have as much value, and so you don't you don't hold it as as high or or as how would I say you it it it, it doesn't it doesn't seem to mean as much, and you know this was this was an era when you know we would we would wait in eager anticipation for the next uh, famous monsters of Filmland or a Starlog or mm-hmm. anything just to figure out, well, what's the, what's the next Star Wars? I mean, when we found out there was another Star Wars, it's like, that just, you know, blew mine and my, my friend's minds. And, you know, and it's three years away. And you think about, God, to a 10-year-old, that's an eternity. Oh, yeah. And there was, for, for, for those of us in the know, uh, we had heard that there were other episodes that Lucas had started in the middle and that there were three before and there were going to be three after to just to wonder when was that going to happen? And, and when I had first moved here to Los Angeles, Lucasfilm had, had just finished uh, uh, Temple of, no, not Temple of Doom, the other one, uh, uh, the last crusade. Right. And they, they essentially, they had no work coming in. That was it. So uh, Lucasfilm and ILM and Skywalker Sound came down to Los Angeles and did a symposium at the Directors Guild, basically letting Hollywood know, hey, we can do stuff for you. And I introduced myself to the then, I think was the manager of ILM, a wonderful lady named Rose Dugan, if if my memory serves me right. And I asked her, uh, as as any young kid would be, is says, when are the next Star Wars coming? Yeah. yeah, and and is it the Clone Wars? Is it is it a, a war fought by clones or over clones? And <laughs> she said, you know, you, you, that's that's a question for George, and he, he's waiting for his kids to grow up before he does that. And I was like, really? And you remember, this was, this was just, he had, he had Amanda, and he had just adopted Katie. So, uh, and I, I don't know what their ages were, but I'm, I'm, again, I'm guessing maybe three and one, or, or, you know, five and three, somewhere in that young, very young age. And uh, I said, wow, so he, he really, he's waiting for the kids to grow up. She says, yeah, look at what he's making nowadays. Uh, Ewok Adventure. Yeah, and she, she told me, says, I can't stand that. But my kids, they got it on loop. And so, so she said, watch. As his kids grow older, the stuff that he makes is going to mature. I called back to that when I was again at the Director's Guild for the Paley Center's honoring in the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And they had the whole cast there. And they, they did uh, uh, what's called an EPK, an electronic press kit, showing you behind the scenes of the Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. And there, you know, on the screen was George with his kids, now maybe 10 and 9 or 10 and 7, walking around, you know, through Europe, making these educational historical action films and I was like son of a bitch he got ABC to pay for his kids to go around the world and learn about history and then when you see the documentary of the Phantom Menace and he first starts writing the uh, the first script you know who's there right by his leg is, is Jet at age four mm-hmm. you know who reportedly was the, the 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 one who named Jar Jar? Yeah, and I was like, yeah, of course. Everything he does, he does for his kids. 
the older Jet got, the older his 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 girls got, the more adult his films got. So in that, if me personally, if that is the reason, I can't fault a father for wanting to to make films for his kids, especially if he can make these kind of films. So that was, you know, that was the, the, to get back to the original thing of, of uh, getting into these type of arts and stuff and, and the path I took. Uh, yeah, that was, that all started with, with Star Wars. You know, animation I fell into, and that was because at the very last, the very last year of college when I was uh, going to be creating my magnum opus and I was on my Spielberg kick and I thought I got to make a desert film because every college kid has to make a desert film <laughs> uh, like like Amblin this was going to be my Amblin right and, uh, we shot we shot interiors and we went to shoot exteriors in the desert and it was the t- the only two weekends that it rained in California that year <laughs> I put out personal expense of a, I want to say five thousand dollars, which to a college kid in nineteen eighty nine ninety was, you know, <laughs> just it's a lot of money, a, a lot of cash, mm-hmm. and and I had nothing to show for it. And at Long Beach State, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I went there, the most important thing was that you got your film done because there's a lot of crap that gets made or but the, the point is it gets made it's uh, the biggest masterpiece is no good if it's sitting on a shelf half done so turn in your films make your deadlines and i was not going to make my deadline and if i didn't make a deadline i would be put out of the program because this was at a time when everybody wanted to go to film school so you know the people were just banging on the doors and I had $500, and one of my uh, oldest college buddies kept uh, nagging me throughout the years that we should do an animated film because he knew I could I could draw a little, and he was absolutely an incredible artist. And so I came to him and said, "Hey, you want to do that animated film?" <laughs> <laughs> And so, largely with his help, we set about doing a claymation film. And I gambled that if I couldn't finish the animation completely by simply having the storyboards in as a slug and having a complete story, that the school would accept that because no one had done an animated film at Long Beach in 20 years. Wow. And so that was that was kind of my gamble, and it paid off. And uh, the final film was a I'm I'm very proud to say was a big hit at our annual film festival. Uh, but at the end of that, again, I was flat broke. I wanted to give copies of the film to the cast, as I had said I would, as you know, so they had something for their reels. And I turned to a friend who was at the time working at the brand new Fox Kids. And I asked her, hey, man, can I give you the film? And do you think you can make some copies at the studio? And she, she said, sure. And I, I half jokingly said, and if you want to show it to your bosses and get me a job, that'd be awesome, too. <laughs> uh, well, she laughed uh, and took the tape. And then came back to me with the copies and said, hey, this is really good. And I said, well, thank you. She said, no, no, no. This is really good. I showed it to my bosses, and they want to hire you. And that's, that's how I got my, my first like professional industry job. I'd worked as PAs on things, and uh, I, I, I was a page at Paramount Studios for two years, and I did – uh, uh, the tour guide at Universal Studios for a time. So that was that was my first that was my like my first professional job designing 
characters for for Fox Kids. What shows did you What shows did you work on back then? Well, I I didn't work on the shows. What I did was I designed characters for. They're called uh, bumpers and station IDs. Yeah. And when you have kids programming, you need to identify. Uh, because of the FCC, and and they don't want kids to mistaken commercials for shows. You have to you have to identify that we're going into a commercial now, right. and we're coming out of a commercial. And uh, so you'll you have this after these messages, we'll be right back. Uh-huh. You know those things. And so I did those for Fox, and, uh, and I, I I I did a, a couple of characters. I did the Fox mascot, which was a fox. Named okay. Redmond, uh, somewhere they're still they're still there. Uh, some you can probably you can find it online. And and, and while I was working at Fox uh, on that, when that job finished, the president of Fox, Margaret Lesh, asked me to come in and head up their restoration archives, uh, which was uh, t- uh, basically cataloging, appraising, and restoring. All of the animated cells. This is back when they still painted on uh, on acetate uh, for all of their shows. I was basically in my own department. I reported to one person, aside from myself. Uh, as long as I maintained a certain budget, I could sign off on things, and I was in charge of physical properties of every animated show that appeared on Fox Kids. Wow. No pressure, and and during that yeah, and during that time period, uh, it allowed me because of my connections to do my first independent feature film as a producer, and that is also where I I made troops, and incidentally, at that same time, Trey Parker and Matt Stone were five doors down from me, uh, working at what was then called Fox Lab doing. The South Park uh, 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 Christmas card, right? And and they would come into my. I had a very very large. I took up almost one half of the building on one side because all of the animation cells were housed in my office. So you, you can just imagine they would come in and they would say, "Wow, it's like Raiders of the Lost Ark," <laughs> and and that's that's basically would be boxes and boxes piled six feet high row after row of nothing but animation cells, and it was just me all alone going through every single box wow. <laughs> and cataloging it. <laughs> so how did the, how did Troops, how did it start to develop? Because it's, it's a fascinating thing, because we're coming up on 20 years, which has got to be, gotta be crazy. It's, it's it, a little convoluted and a, a, a little windy, but it actually starts with, a magazine uh, that is now defunct called Sci-Fi Universe. Oh yeah, I remember. Yeah, uh, with, uh, it was published by Mark Altman, uh-huh. and uh, uh, who was a friend, and a lot of the contributing writers uh, were my friends. Uh, Steve Melching, who has now gone on to be one of the co-producers of Star Wars Rebels, mm-hmm. and has probably written more Star Wars canon than. I want to say any other writer aside from Henry Gilroy mm-hmm. uh, was at that point in time talking about doing a parody of Dark Horse Comics Tales of a Bounty Hunter called Tales of a Death Star Scanning Crew. Okay. Uh, it's going to be published in Sci-Fi Universe as a comic strip. That never came to fruition, and Steve at the time was was dating a girl uh, at Fox, and this was 1997, and they were going to be releasing the special editions. And as Fox employees, we got to see all of the, the movies uh, well in advance of the general public. And so a lot of us went to the Fox lot, and we, we saw the film. Uh, and as we were all walking back to our cars on the lot, uh, Steve and uh, I want to say uh, Dave McDermott and Dave Hardgrove, uh, uh, also two writers that, that work in animation. Uh, actually, wait, Hardgrove works, I believe, at uh, Technicolor now. But one of them, and I don't remember who, said, because we were discussing Tales of a Death Star scanning crew, 
uh, one was discussing it was, was said you should cross stormtroopers with cops, which was a Fox show at the time. Uh-huh. And that was kind of it. And everybody laughed and there was a little bit of silence. And I, I said, is anybody going to take that? <laughs> and then nobody did. And I said, does anyone mind if I do? And I'm sure nobody had any idea what I was, what I was going to do with it. But they said, yeah, sure. Go ahead. And uh, as, as I've said, recounted a couple of times, rather than going back to my car, I went to my office and uh, as I said, my office was like almost half the building uh, on one side and or floor. I should say half the floor. And uh, next to me was the tape vault for Fox. So I, I went into the tape vault and I just pulled out five episodes of Cops and watched it that night. And I, I wrote the script that night. That was in January. And we uh, I, it was one of those things where. You know, I'd worked long enough in the industry. I had enough talented friends where I could say, well, okay, my my best friend is the special effects supervisor on Babylon 5. I know two friends, uh, two little people who are characters at Universal Studios. They can be the Jawas. Uh, we could shoot at El Mirage because that's state land and I can get it cheap. Uh, I... I have a friend that I just did a feature film with who looks like Uncle Owen. I have another friend that I didn't cast in the feature film, but she auditioned for it. And she looks enough like Aunt Beru, but I can blur her face because that's part of cops. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that the most difficult thing was the stormtroopers. Yeah, because like the the five hundred first didn't exist in ninety at that time. And uh, I I was. I was making phone calls. I called Fox, and of course, Fox didn't have any costumes. And I, I, I through through some weird way, I, I, I got the number to a guy at ILM, and he said he would loan me some stunt costumes from Return of the Jedi, but that they weren't they weren't desert troopers; they were Endor troopers. And I thought, well, they're troopers. I okay, what? A, and as I'm trying to 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 find costumes, uh, Star Wars premiere, special edition premieres, and the next day on the front page of the Los Angeles Times is a big color photo of of, of like six stormtroopers, <laughs> and I'm like, holy, sh-, you know. Uh, these are awesome. I wonder if this was Fox publicity. So I, still working in Fox, I called Fox. I said, "Did you guys do this?" That nope, they were they were from the audience. And so I started asking around all my special effects guys because I was like, "These costumes are too good. They have to be pros." Uh-huh. And one of my effects guys said, "I don't know who they are, but they're students at the art center in Pasadena." And two of them are girls, and they're twins. <laughs> and I was like, well, that narrows it down. You know, how many twin girls go to the art center in no vacuum form? I mean, it's, that's, that, that can't, how hard can they be to find? And luckily, this is kind of where, you know, fate plays in. My roommate at the time was head of admissions at the art center. And so I just said, Maddie, I need to know these two girls that do vacuum forms. They're twins. She came back the, that night with their their names and numbers. I I contacted them. I met them at the Empire premiere across the street at Hamburger Hamlets, <laughs> and uh, I I talked with them. I told them I I worked for Fox. I wanted to do this film. Uh, I'd love to use them. I gave them the scripts, and uh, I got a call next day, and they said, you know, we we've been getting a lot of these, but you're just the first one that made us laugh, and so yeah, we'd like to do this. And, and that's, that's how we did it. And, uh, we, we rehearsed on the parking lot roof at, at box network for two weeks. And then we went out to El Mirage and we shot it in a day using two cameras. And then we went back for pickups because we initially had our stormtroopers on actual dune buggies. And we were going to mat out the dune buggies, okay. but it just became, it, technically, it just became too hard. So the uh, the the speeder bike stuff is 
is all CG except for the guy in the foreground. And that's just one of the troopers with a helmet and uh, the top part of his costume on. And he's kneeling down in the back of my then pickup truck. (laughs) And, you know, the cameraman's on one side of the pickup. He's on the other side. And I'm driving, and that's that was the pickup shots that we did. <laughs> uh, whose droid is this? Uh-huh, it's your cousin's. Is this your cousin? Is this your cousin? Are you his cousin? No? Okay, then who are you? Oh, you're his friend. Well, Mr. Friend, would you uh, step over there for a moment, please? Okay, so the uh, droid belongs to your cousin. Now, if I go over to that sand crawler over there and ask to see your cousin, is he going to have a bill of sale for this? Okay, well, what I'm going to do now, sir, is place you under imperial arrest so we can only help... Hey, am I talking to you? Am I talking to you? Then stay over there and shut your mouth. Now, if you move again, I'm uh, going to shoot you. Those, you know, and I knew because, like, again, learning from George, he said sound is 50%. You know, it's like we got it. The sound's got to be good. And the thing is that everybody that got involved in this was my age, which means that, you know, they were around 10, 11, 9, you know, years old when Star Wars came out. And, you know, uh, at, at this point, we're thinking, well, we're never going to get to work on a Star Wars. Let's do this. So everybody that volunteered, you know, was in the industry and gotten into the industry because they were inspired by Star Wars. And here they figured, here's my chance to do a Star Wars piece. And, you know, the, the, the costumes were of such great quality and the effects were turning out to be such great quality that it made everybody else want to step up and just put together something. And Bryant Arnett was the sound guy. And, you know, it's like you didn't have access to a Lucasfilm library at that time for TIE fighters and lasers and stuff. So what we did for the speeder bikes was I brought in my Nintendo 64 and the Shadows of the Empire game. The, the we put the settings so that there was no music, there was no dialogue, it was only sound effects. And I did the first level of snow walkers and then I flew around and I would I would foley the movement of my snow speeder to the same uh, motions of the speeder bikes. What? Uh, also, the laser blasts. The laser blasts are me shooting as Dax Rendar from the N64 in time with uh, with the stormtroopers. And then for the Tie Fighters, this was the the most genius one. Bryant had the Star Wars story album oh, yeah. from when he was a kid. And so, and, and this was, again, this was, turntables were going out of style. So it was like, we had to find a turntable. <laughs> so, and we recorded the TIE Fighter sounds because they were clean mm-hmm. on the Star Wars story album. And that's the TIE Fighter sounds. And then we had the, our troopers came in and they foleyed all the troopers, boy, you know, all the trooper noises and the guns. Steve Melching plays the Jawas. <laughs> and, uh. Jess Harnell and um, uh, God, uh, uh, Bill Farmer and Cam Clark and Drew Massey and uh, myself and one, I can't remember, I'm, I'm forgetting somebody, but they, we were the voices of the troopers. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, and Bill is the voice of Goofy uh, from Disney. Jess Harnell is Yakko Warner. Um, uh, uh, Drew Massey is currently on... Uh, H.R. Puffin stuff, not H.R. Puffin stuff, the other, uh, Sigmund the Sea Monster, he's also the voice of the Foster Farm Chicken, and uh, uh, he, he's done some Henson stuff, you know, so it, it was it was top-notch down the line. We gotta call to check out this domestic dispute. Now, supposedly the husband said something to their kid, and now the wife thinks that he's run off, you know. Um, supposedly one of them is intoxicated and one of them is injured. Now, we're familiar with this couple. You know, this is not the first time we've been out here. So we're going to see if we can straighten this whole thing out. 
Well, what's the problem? I've had it. Uh I've had it with him. Uh He keeps lying to Luke and me, and now Luke's run off Uh and hasn't come back. That's ridiculous. Hey, I'll talk to you in a second. Right now, I'm talking to your wife, all right? Okay. And Luke's probably dead now because of you. Now, Maru, just calm down. Calm down, okay? Well, yesterday, Luke comes in and says, I think these droids... No, 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 Luke's your boy. My nephew. Uh Anyway, he says, I think these droids we bought might be stolen. Uh And then he says, well, I don't care. Your only concern is to get them working. And Luke is like, I want to go to the academy. And he says, well, I need you for the harvest this year. And then he starts talking about Obi-Wan and his father. I did not. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You're just lying. You're always lying to him. You never tell him the truth about him or his sister. Drew, shut up. No, I'm tired of shutting up. You shut up. You can both shut up or spend a night in the detention area. All right? Did you ever think that almost 20 years later that we'd still be talking about troops when you made it, that it would have the legacy that it continues to still have? Well, of course, I planned it all that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, man, I was just looking for a, uh, I, just, I just wanted a, uh, a reel, uh-huh. you know, get me a job. That was my, that was my thing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing because it was made in a time where there was no YouTube. Yeah. And fan films, like, aside from Hardware Wars, there wasn't really a whole lot. Like, people didn't really think of doing fan films very much. Well, I I think because prior to that time period, one, there wasn't a distribution uh, uh, pipeline that had been set up. I mean, even YouTube was, was, like, seven, eight years away. You know, what we did was happenstance. I was I was trying to ride what was then the gray market video trend. You know, everybody's like, what's the latest trend? How do we get ahead of it and 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 how do we capitalize on it? And you know, when I when I was in high school, the trend for breaking into the industry was, well, you go to film school and then you make a film and then some agent sees it and maybe that's how you make your, your first bit. So I, I went to film school. But when I was in film school, the trend became independent filmmakers like Tarantino and Rodriguez and, and Kevin Smith. And so I got out of college and I tried to make an independent film that would, that would do it. But by the time I was making my independent film... The the trend was now gray market videos like South Park's uh, uh, the Christmas card, you know, and mm-hmm. people passing those around, and so that was the thing where I said, well, this is maybe I can do this, I can get this fast enough, and I can get this passed around, and maybe that will be my thing, and that's how I'll get in. Uh, but it turns out that's not how I got in. I actually I got in by starting in a completely new trend complete by accident which was the internet that was that was due to chris gore uh of uh, film threat magazine and uh, uh comic-con hq and collider video uh, he saw my my piece and he was a big proponent of independent filmmakers and 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 really pushed it to people and the guys at the force net saw it and asked if they could put it on their site mm-hmm. and i Thought, I wasn't even thinking, oh, yeah, everybody can see it. I was thinking, oh, good, I can offer this for free and devalue it so that people don't have to pay 20 bucks at a convention to get a bad copy. Right. You know, if, if it's up on the net and it's for free, then everybody will have access to it. And that was that was all I was thinking. And then. Uh, the Force.net uh, servers uh, were the same ones as Time Magazine and Newsweek and Oprah and Phil Donahue at the time, and we crashed the servers on the Eastern Seaboard wow. when, it, when it went up because everybody was trying to get the film. And naturally, when you start crashing news sites, servers, they want to know what the hell crashed their server. And that's that's how troops got introduced to the zeitgeist, and how I how I got noticed and got my agent and projects and all that stuff. That's good. You've taken your first step into a larger world.
was a big fan of the Star Wars Tales comic book, and I remember reading um, stuff like Tag and Bank and A Death uh-huh. Star is Born and Force Fiction uh-huh. and loving it. And I remember that there was a back of one of the issues where they were like, oh, you might be wondering who wrote like A Death Star is Born. It's this guy, Kevin Rubio, and also he wrote Troops. And I remember, you know, I think I was I was in college, and I remember being uh-huh. like, well, of course he did, you know, like <laughs> because I loved Troops, and I was like, and I was like dying laughing at these Star Wars Tales comics you did. So how uh, did how, how did that come about? Where you um, started writing comics for Dark Horse? David Land, who was the editor of Star Wars Tales, was a fan of Troops. And he, he, he contacted me and asked if, uh, if I would be interested in writing a comic book. And uh, I, I, said, I said, well, I, I, I've never done a comic book, but it sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I pitched a couple of stories, and uh, Death Star Was Born was the first one I, I pitched, and they accepted that, and that, that's kind of how that, that took off. And uh, the sales were really good. They were very happy with the work, and they asked if I would like to do another one. And so I wrote Forced Fiction, and uh, uh, that uh, again sold very well. And they asked if I'd like to do another one. And I think I think I, I think I did uh, Fet Club. Oh yeah, yeah, right. And then uh, by the time I I had done Fet Club. Uh, Lucasfilm, you know, had, had been fans of, of the piece. And I don't know if it was just Lucasfilm or if it was George directly, but uh, they contacted Dark Horse and asked them to ask me if I would like to do my own comic. And I said, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let me, and, let me, let me check. Uh, yeah. And Dark Horse said, well, you know, we'd really like to do like a Troops comic. And, you know, at the time I was like, eh, I've done it. Let me, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd like to do something different. And I said, but if you want Stormtroopers, I can do something that incorporates Stormtroopers. And I was a, I was a big fan of Tom Stoppard. And mm-hmm. so I, I basically, that's what I pitched. I said, Tom Stoppard's Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead in the Star Wars universe. And I did a two-page uh, treatment. And and we went from there, and that's how we did tag and bank. And I, I got to point out and and, and highlight uh, my artist Lucas Marangon, mm-hmm. who uh, I I try never to write a comic without him attached to it. He just makes my stuff funnier or more funny. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember like a, I think it's in Force Fiction. There's all the. Uh, the little cameos of like Buzz Lightyear and yeah. stuff sitting in the diner, and it, it's well, I, I I do write all those. Oh, oh, oh really? I, I, yeah. Every I I I I the 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 two things that I didn't do, but I always get credit for, uh, was Sean Connery in the Name of the Rose, and that was that was Lucas. He put he put Sean Connery in, <laughs> uh, and uh, that was from the very last one. The uh, uh, Revenge of the Clone Menace, uh-huh. and in Tag and Bink Special Edition, the shot of both the original Anakin Skywalker and the new Anakin Skywalker as Force Ghosts, that was actually Dave Land who suggested that. I wish I'd have thought of that one. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, but Lucas Marangon right now is the only artist I've found that can successfully draw a comedic double take. There may be more, but but Lucas, in my mind, is the best. So then years later, I'm watching yeah. uh, Clone Wars, right? Yes. And huh? Bomb Bad Jedi comes on. You know, and I've always had a soft spot for Jar Jar. And I'm like, the, I'm like whoever made this episode knows what they're doing. Like, thank God somebody is being really kind and really sweet to Jar Jar. And just for some reason, I thought Jar Jar worked so well in animation, like as a bumbling goofball. Um, So I'm then I'm watching the end credits and I see who wrote it. You did. (laughs) So how did that come about? How did, uh, how did, how did it come about where you were writing? writing, Well, um, uh, I basically, I, I, I called my agent and I said, look, I'm, I'm writing Star Wars Dark Horse comics. I'm a contributing writer on Star, Star Wars Insider. Uh, I, was, I have, you know, the premier 
Star Wars Pioneer Award that was given to me by George Lucas. If I can't get on as a writer, <laughs> what do you got to do? For Clone Wars, there is something very, very wrong. Right. And he got me a meeting, and uh, uh, I, I, I was brought in for the first season. And I remember Henry Henry Gilroy, the uh, the head writer at the time, you know, and he broke the news to me. He says, "You're going to be doing episode eight. I said, "Oh, great! What is it?" And he says, "It's Jar Jar." I was like. <laughs> Oh, you asshole. <laughs> <laughs> if those droids attacking us, Padme's probably in trouble. My lady gave us very specific instructions to remain here. Oh, fiddlesticks. We must have happened try and saving her. Jar Jar Binks, have you gone completely mad? You'll do more harm than good. <laughs> no, no, no. George George wants you to do this. He he requested you to do this one personally. I said, what, does he hate me? <laughs> no, he really believes you can do this. And I'm like, oh, great. I see. I'm the shock trooper hitting the first wave at Normandy. Yeah. So, I'm gonna get no. I'm gonna get mowed down by the fans, so you guys can gracefully step over me. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, this was at again. This was the first year they were still working out the pipeline. There were a lot more limitations, and the story. Oh man, there was so much more to that story that was kept getting cut, and it would it would be like I'd get a call. Hey, uh, you know that uh, that uh, climactic battle sequence at the end when the the troops arrive. Yoda and and uh, and free the planet. <laughs> so, yeah, so, well, we 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 just blew up a planet in the last episode, so we don't have the money. <laughs> I was like, okay, so, but the lightsaber fight's still in, right? So, no, no, we're not going to be able to do the lightsaber fight. So, well, what if instead of two lightsabers, it's just one lightsaber, and the two Jedi combatants are battling over it, and. Uh, and I was like, uh, Kev, uh, what do Jedi's wear? I said, robes. I says, and and what happens? And I was like, oh man, a, a pol- polygonal intersection. Yeah, this <laughs> is cloth dynamics. Yes, <laughs> so, so we can't have two Jedi's fighting and tangling because their the robes would stick together. They still hadn't figured that out. Oh you know? man, wow. And and at one point it was like. Okay, uh, you can show, you can write Jar Jar swimming in the water, and you can write him out of the water, but you can't have him jumping into or out of the water because we haven't figured out a way to make the water work yet, dripping off of people. <laughs> wow. like, it's a water planet! Yeah, right. You know, you, you, you roll with it. And I, I thought, you know, it, it turned out fairly well in the end, and... Again, there's there are things that you know people say. Oh God, I can tell that's you. Uh-huh. And it's funny on several of the things where they say, God, I can tell that's you. It's actually George, and it's it's it was George in the booth directing or making last minute changes. And they're the whole you know the Roger 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 Roger. Yeah, that's George, and the line read of. Uh, of 3PO and uh, and and Padme, uh-huh. like, Jar Jar, Jar Jar. That's that was George's direction in the booth. When I when I did my first draft, I was really I, everybody was picking on Jar Jar, and Henry had said, you know, you really gotta you gotta let back a little. We don't we don't want to really do that. And then George came in and said, no, no. They have to treat Jar Jar the way the fans do. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not like he wasn't aware. And, and you know, the guy, uh, uh, he, George has a very dry sense of humor mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and, and dark. <laughs> and, 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 you know, and that's the thing, uh, without, without getting too much into detail, everybody, you know, praises uh, Filoni and rightly so for him just being able to steer the course and and know what to reveal and what not to reveal and give fans just enough just a taste but I I, I, I don't think he'd, he'd mind if I said a lot of that is gleaned off of what George taught him oh yeah and if if you if you were able to sit in a, 
a story breakdown with George and listen to him talk about why things are the way they are and the 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 way characters interact and uh, you know why the force does this and it doesn't do that. You you would see that you know it's, the guy wasn't just throwing stuff out haphazardly to screw with people. Sometimes he was, but <laughs> but he knows the universe. It's his universe, you know. The dark side is pleasure, biological and temporary, and easy to achieve. The light side is joy. Everlasting and difficult to achieve. The great challenge. Must overcome laziness, give up quick pleasures, and overcome fear, which leads to hate. Amen. Now let us pray. working all the time do you have any 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 words of wisdom any advice for anyone that wants to be a writer or filmmaker uh persistence and do it you know nowadays again the tools are, are right there you know it's, a, it's not enough just as god i really want to go out and do it uh, and and you'd be surprised with when you have uh, hindrances and governors, uh, and I'm there's a word I'm that's escaping me. Um, uh, but how how much that pushes you uh, with with troops? I I didn't have a lot of money, and so it's like, well, what do I work with? How do I work with what I got here? Uh, I I live in a desert climate, so my story has to be in Tatooine because I can't afford sets. But I can I can go outside and I can shoot, and that was you know that was that formed the whole basis because of the limitations that I had. Uh, you know I would I would just say uh, go out and do it. You got you you've got a distribution platform now. You have YouTube. Mm-hmm. You know sure you can put up cat videos and get a million hits. Uh, <laughs> but if I would say that if you if you if you're committed to to doing stuff, don't expect to be perfect on the first try. You're going to suck at it for a long time before you're good at it. And even when you're good at it, you're still going to suck on, on many, many days. Lord knows I do. And there will be plenty of friends that will back me up on it. <laughs> and, but if, you, if, this is, if this is your passion, if this is the thing that you think about when you wake up in the morning and go to sleep, uh, don't let anybody tell you that you, you can't do it. Uh, Lucasfilm told me I, I, when I initially made Troops, I went to Lucasfilm first before anything else and said, I'm going to do this. Is it okay? And they said, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I gambled. You did it anyways. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so your favorite piece of John Williams' Star Wars music? Probably the sunset music from uh, uh, episode four. Yeah. That and, and the Yoda theme when he's raising uh, the, uh, the X-Wing out of the water. Yeah. What Star Wars planet would you most want to live on? Naboo. You know, I always say Naboo, too. Naboo seems really nice. They got cool yellow spaceships. Like, what's yeah. <laughs> um, best hair in Star Wars? Chewbacca. <laughs> uh, favorite background Jedi? Favorite background Jedi? Uh, Alias Akora. Yeah. Favorite Star Wars poster? 
probably a toss-up between the Star Wars A sheet and the Star Wars D sheet, and fans will know. Mm-hmm. Those are. Mm-hmm. If you don't know, go yeah. Google it. <laughs> get out your get out your computer phone. Yeah. Although the the only one I had as a kid was the Hildebrand. Yeah, which you know that's no slouch either. No, no. Favorite Star Wars comic book, not one by you. <laughs> uh, the short story Skippy the Jedi Droid. Oh, you know nobody talks about Peter David, right? Yeah. People don't talk about Skippy the Jedi Droid enough. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 yeah. That's a that's a that's a underrated gem right there and last one yes. you have to watch a star wars movie right now which one would you put in the original the new hope star wars 77. new hope the original original release tatooine was just a big ball of dust until r2 and 3po showed up but since then my life hasn't been the same from a moisture farmer on a remote desert planet to a leader of the rebellion fighting for freedom throughout the galaxy But now the rebellion faces even greater odds, and I must be ready. I must follow Ben Kenobi's teachings, learn more about the powers of the Force and becoming a Jedi Knight, if I'm going to be prepared for a confrontation with Darth Vader. See it when the Empire strikes back. Is is there any way uh, fans can contact you if you want? Are you online at all? Uh, I'm on social media at the Kevin Rubio on Twitter. Uh, Facebook, Instagram, and I think on Reddit, I'm Kevin underscore Rubio. All right. Well, th- thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me tonight. And, uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it was a fantastic conversation. It was really, really great. Cool. And these last points, too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise. I just want to thank Kevin once again for taking the time to talk to me there. Uh, Really great conversation. Really fascinating stuff, I thought. So if you liked this episode, you should head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review on there. And if you do that, and if you write a little something, we will read your review on an upcoming show. And you can also... Follow Blast Points on Twitter. We're at Blast underscore points. Uh, You can like our Facebook page, and you can follow us on Instagram. If you do all that, you'll see things that we post and news on upcoming shows. And you can talk to us on there, ask us questions, post anything you like. We love getting suggestions and comments, so send us some stuff. And you can read my Rebels recaps every week on DoomRocket.com. And Gabe will be back next week. Lisa Boston with happiness seeing you again. Boom! But as for Blast Points episode 43, this is Jason saying thank you for listening. May the Force be with you. Goodbye, old friend. May the Force be with you. See, things got a bit nasty here. I mean, it's unfortunate, but it was almost expected with these people.
Well, you know, I mean, the farmers out here are having a bad season. Tempers are high, and it's just bad for everyone. The important thing now is that we find their nephew, uh, Duke, and make sure he's okay. Hey, did did she say they just bought some stolen droids or something? Yep. Yep, 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 yep. Damn shame. Damn shame. Made a full 